0: to pick up in our series that we've been working on. Um, I am going to slip out just as soon as I get finished this evening. My grandmother um, had a stent put in her heart this morning. And so they are watching her in ICU, and the only time I could get there to see her, it starts at 8.30 over in Edelman, so I'm going to get done and race right out. Please don't think I'm being mean or uh, uh, not wanting to talk with you. I just would like to see my grandmother today. Is that okay with everybody? Uh, keep her in your prayers if you would. She's doing well. Um, she's been obviously having some heart issues, but I think this is really going to help her and uh, get her back on track. Okay. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, we've been fighting through with Paul this issue of the law versus faith uh, and these these Jewish Christians who were trying to, to live both under the law and uh, and by faith and if you did not live under the law then you couldn't receive salvation by faith and they had this thing all mixed up but Paul is going to really bring it home for us today and we're going to work this issue out. Uh, I'm going to try to get all the way through verse 25 today, Uh, so we're going to try to cover a lot of verses here, but we're really going to work this issue of the law versus faith out. It's going to be really good, because we're going to come to this issue, if the law can't save you, then my question becomes, why the law? Is that a fair question? If the law is of no use to you to, to save you and get you on the path to God, then what is the purpose of the law? Why are there 633 laws of Moses and all these people are trying to keep them and we live our lives trying to keep them? You say, well, I don't keep all 633. Well, do you keep the top 10? Do you keep, how many of you try to keep the Ten Commandments? Okay, so you're trying, to keep, you're trying to keep the law, even though you may not know all the little intricacies of the laws of Moses, but what is the purpose of it if it's doing us no good? Paul's going to break it down for us. Does that sound good? Let's read in verse 10. For as many are as, are, as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk there. Yet the law is not of faith but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's pray before we begin this evening. Father, I thank you for your presence today that I felt so strongly here. Thank you that you've chosen to be with us, that you've given us, uh, that you tore the veil and gave us access to you, O oh God. Father, I pray you would hope in our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to hear from you, to be challenged by the power of your word, that we can dive in and see what you have to teach us tonight. I thank you for it in the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. So Paul's going to identify in verse 10 here, right off the bat, his, his audience, who he's speaking to, and, and he's going to be very clear about it, and he's going to be it's, it's a very broad brush, and here's what he says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For as many are as are of the works of the law are under the curse. So here's what he's saying, anyone who thinks that their law performance can give them a standing before God, I'm talking to you. If that's the way you think, if that's you, then you need to know something. You are under a curse. If you're under the law, then you're under a curse. End of discussion. Here's what, this is what Paul is saying. End of discussion. You're under the law, you're under a, a curse. The Jewish Christians of, that he's writing to here, they thought that the law was a path to blessing, but Paul tells you it's not a path to blessing, and not only is it not a path to blessing, but it's a path to being cursed. This shatters the thinking. For If you have lived your life where the law is the greatest thing in your world, it's all that you know, all that you've been taught, you've read it, studied it, prayed it three times a day, and now all of a sudden they're telling you not only will it not bless you, but it will curse you. Ooh. It's hard to see how this could be confusing when you read Psalm 119, verse 1, who says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Or Psalm verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. When you, when you hear the Bible talking about the law of God, It's easy to get confused how how Paul is suddenly saying if you're under the law and and you're putting all your stock in the law that you're now going to be cursed. This can be very confusing. (coughs) Excuse me. So the question then is how does the law bring blessing or how does the law bring curses? How do we work this thing out? Well, the term law or the law when you read in the Bible, specifically the Old Testament... It has two senses or basically two meanings what it's referring to. The first is referring to the law of Moses with all of its commands which a man must obey to be approved by God. That's the first way. Sometimes when the Bible says refers to the law of God, that's what it's referring to. Other times when the Bible refers to the law of God or the laws of God, it's referring to God's word in a very general sense. So, for instance, uh, and this happens many times, actually most of the time in the Old Testament when, he's, when the Bible talks about the laws of God, he's referring in a general sense to God's Word. For instance, in Psalm 119, verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. He's referring to meditating on Scripture, not just the 633 laws, but they're referring to, um, of course, David wasn't referring to the New Testament because it wasn't written yet. But he's referring to all of the scriptures that he had access to. And he would read on them and he's referring to them as the law of God. Because for him, scripture was law or a, uh, it became the fundamental way that he lived his life. Are you with me? So, uh, the law then, as, as Paul sees it, is an instruction manual for living life. Paul, is, uh, Paul tells us that the law is not the way to get to God. It is an instruction manual, manual for how to live life. There is an inherent, built-in blessing in living the way that God says we should live or, or in fulfilling w- what you might refer to as the manufacturer's recommendation. If you drive a car the way your manufacturer recommends you to, you'll get a blessing from it. But if you drive it wild and crazy like the Dukes of Hazzard... It may have some negative ramifications of it, right? When you walk up to buy a car, and in today's economy, with gas prices where they are, the first thing most of us look at is what kind of gas mileage does it get, right? And, uh, you know, you walk up to a car, it says 36 on the highway, 31 in the city, Well, you can just guarantee if you don't get on the highway very, very slowly and just ease it up till you get to 62.5 miles an hour and set your cruise on 62.5 miles an hour, you won't even get 36. You'll really get like 33 or 34 because you're not doing it the way the manufacturer intended it to, right? So you're not maximizing the blessing of that car. Do do you all know what I'm talking about? Know anything about cars? Okay. All right. So here's the point. You can follow the law and be blessed, but still not receive eternal life, thus receiving the curse. You can follow the law and not live for God and still receive some of the blessing that comes from following the law. When I was a kid, my my father used to always tell me about a businessman that he knew growing up or in his life before I was born That this businessman had businesses all over the nation. In every city he would go into to build a business, he would find a good church, and he would start tithing from that business to that local church in, in that community every single time. And his businesses would flourish and be blessed. And one of the things he tied it to was his tithing. But the man was not a believer, did not go to church, didn't live for God. But he believed so much in the law of God that he put it into practice and received a blessing from it, even though he was still under the curse of being condemned to death. Are you with me? So God never intended the law to be the way we find our approval before him. The law is not bad, nor the word of God wrong. You you see, what... If we if we go too far with what Paul is saying, and Paul doesn't want us to, we start this whole "the just shall live by faith." If we're not careful, we'll throw the law out and say it's evil, it's wrong. We don't have to live that way. You've, it's a popular belief in today's society among many people who call themselves Christian that because of grace, I can go live any way I want to. And Paul's saying that is the wrong way to. Don't go down that road the the law is not wrong and it's not bad it's just not the way to get to god and if you use the law as the highway to get to god then you're never going to get there so god knew that god knew that we could never keep the law so he then had to institute the system of atoning sacrifice to go along with the, wall, the law he had to create this whole sacrificial system so that to, to go with the law because we can't even keep it. But the entire sacrificial system looked forward to what Jesus did for us on the cross. So it is all a type of what Christ did for us. So everything here points to Christ because the law couldn't get us there on his own. So what is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. You cannot keep the law perfectly forever, so therefore you're set up for failure. What happens when you fail? The curse. When you fail, the curse. And you can't do it. Verse 10, he says, watch this, and he's going to quote from Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things. How many things? How many of the laws? Every single one of them. Every single one of them all the time, every day. You you don't get to do them uh, six days a week. And then on the seventh day you get a free day. No, no, no. All things, all the time. And then he says, which are written in the book of the law, to do them. Notice the word to do them. The words to do them. So it's not just that you know them. It's not just that you can quote the Ten Commandments. It's not just that you say you love them. Or that you uh uh that, that you say you can you you can memorize them or that you appreciate them. No, no, no. You actually have to do them all. All six hundred and thirty-three. You have to do every single one of them. And this is what the law does for us. If you don't live it, if you don't do it all of them, every single time, then you're set up to be cursed. This is such a big issue. You this is such a big issue that Hebrew Bibles actually took out the word all. I'm being serious with you. When you look at our ancient manuscripts, they, every one of them says all. When you, Paul quoted the ancient manuscripts and he put all. But somewhere over the course of history, uh, the Jewish rabbis and the scribes took out of the Hebrew uh, Bible the word all because they knew they could never live up to it. If we're if we're under the law, we're set up for failure, because number one, you can't do it all all the time, and number two, even if you could, it wouldn't help because it's not designed to get you into right standing before God. So even if you could do it all, it wouldn't help. Verse thirteen. Let's get to some good news. You want some good news? Here it is. Verse thirteen. Christ has redeemed us. Thank you, Jesus. He redeemed us. Now. Redeemed, in in Paul's writing, he uses a couple of different Greek words for the word redeemed. You've probably heard me talk about one of my favorite Greek words in all of Scripture is the word Uh And it's the process of a, uh, a wealthy benefactor buying back a slaved person in order to give them their freedom. How many of you have heard me talk about that before? Man, just the... the, the the, the picture that that paints for me in my life is astounding. This is a different word. This is the word, I and mean, I'm trying to say it for you, ex-a, exagrazo. Exagrazo. We translate it as redeemed. It's similar to the other word, but it's a little bit different. This word is a war term. In ancient wars, and Paul is referring to here, when you would go in uh, and conquer a land, you would take with you captives. Remember Daniel? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were all captives. He took them captive, and uh, and the king took them back. So here's what would happen. The victor would take uh, captives. Poor people would be sold into slavery. We're just going to take you and sell you into slavery. We're going to make money off of you. Wealthy or important people, people that mattered in their homeland, maybe our governor, our president, uh, leading CEOs, bankers, uh, 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 big, rich, important people that we all know and we see on magazines and TV. Things like that. Here's what they would do. They would be held captive for a ransom. Ransom exactly like you know a ransom when, you, when someone is kidnapped. and They want to pay a ransom. So we would say, I, "I I conquer. I take Pastor Elton from you. I take him back with me. I realized he is worth gazillions, and you need him. You you can't live your life without him. Nobody feels that way about Pastor Elton. Okay, I don't know. they don't know yet. Okay. <laughs> so here's what I say: for one million dollars, I'll give him back to you. That's the ransom. One million dollars. So you would all go home, you would all gather all your savings, you would clean things out, you would gather your gold, your silver, you'd sell vehicles, you'd sell donkeys, you you would sell everything you could sell, and you would gather the money and you would bring it to me and we would do an exchange for, I get the ransom money and you get Pastor Elton back, right? Just like a kidnapping you've seen on TV, you've heard about, and there's a ransom note and all those things. Same deal, but in war. But here is the picture that Paul is painting. We are so much, the the ransom was so high to get us out of sin that we can't pay our own ransom. We can't pay it. The only person who could pay it was Christ. And the only way Christ could pay it was with his life. So here's what he said. Remember, poor, unimportant people, according to to the, the way war worked, unimportant people, poor people, people that didn't seem to matter, were just sold into slavery. But important people, wealthy people, people that mattered to the people at home, they were sold for a ransom. Here's what Jesus is saying to us. You're so important to me. You're so valuable to me that even though the ransom was more than you could pay and more than all of you could pay together the only one who could pay it was me with my life i'm willing to pay it because you matter that much wow but there's more to it than that because the curse had us defeated it had us held captive we couldn't pay it and while i thank god for paying the price i thank jesus for paying the price there's more to it because, the, because he goes on to say right here, uh, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So here's what Paul says. Not only did Jesus pay his life, pay the price with his life, but then he became the curse for us. He actually became it. Who was doing the cursing? When you follow, if you go back to Deuteronomy, the 26th, 27th, 28th chapters, and you read uh, the doctrine of two ways. You do this, and you're blessed, you do that, and you're cursed. Who is doing the blessing and the cursing? God. Right? You follow the works of God, God will bless you. You don't follow the works, God will curse you. Understand this. Who cursed Jesus on the tree? God. So now you got to get a picture of this. The price was so high. It didn't just cost Jesus his life. But it cost him being cursed by his own father. To hang there on a tree. On a cross. For me and you. Now you start to see this picture get painted. Paul takes it even further. What is he talking about? Why does he say cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? Because for Jewish people in their tradition. Death wasn't the worst punishment. Worse than death was to be after you were killed, to leave your body laying out, exposed, to be humiliated, to be mocked, to be laughed at. Uh, it, it, was a, it was an embarrassment to just leave a body open to, to uh, animals, scavenging animals and birds. To come and do, their, do what they wanted to with your body. So here's, the, here's one of the worst punishments that you could have as a Jewish person. Not only would you be killed, uh, your life be taken from you, but then you would just be laid out in front of the whole city while birds and rats and whoever, you could come by and kick them and mock them. So now, not only were you killed, but you were completely humiliated, you and your entire family. This is what they did to Jesus. Jesus was hung on a cross. He died. His body was open and exposed, bringing the worst kind of humiliation, the worst kind of embarrassment, uh, the worst kind of cursing. It was open to the, to, for everyone to see. And what Paul is trying to show us is that Christ didn't just die for us. But he was cursed and humiliated in the worst possible way. And that was the ransom to get you freed from the curse of the law. So now when we say thank you Jesus for dying on the cross. It's not just that he died. There's so much more to it. Verse 14. Why did he do it? Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles and cry, Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Notice here, the promise is not earned, it is received. This is the core of what Paul is teaching. You can't earn it. You just got to receive it. You just got to call on Jesus. You just got to ask him. The good news is you can't earn it, but you don't have to. All you got to do is ask. Everybody take a deep breath. Verse 15, because it's about to get even better now. Are you ready for this? Paul has a way of taking you down to the bottom. But the good news about Paul is he usually brings us back out. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only uh, a man's covenant, yet, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed... Where the promise is made. He does not say and to seeds as of many but as of one. He's quoting. And to your seed. Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18. Who is Christ. And this I say that the law which was 430 years later. Cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. That it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law. It is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Okay, so now, what we see here is Paul putting seemingly for a moment at odds the the promise of Abraham versus the law of Moses. And they seem to be at odds for just a moment. Because the law of Moses says you have to do it this way. The promise of Abraham said uh, that Abraham believed, thus it was accounted to him as righteousness. So, so these two things are at odd. Abraham came first, Moses came second. Here's what he's saying. First of all, verse 15, he says, I'm, I'm talking about a covenant with God, but even if you were just talking about man's covenant, here's the principle that applies. Whichever one comes first, you can't change it by just because you made a new covenant. Notice he says here in verse 16, uh, verse, yeah, verse 16, uh, now to Abraham and his seed. Notice that seed is capitalized because it's referring to Jesus. He's not referring to just everyone, he's referring specifically to, to Jesus and what would be. Uh, brought all together in fullness or in completion in Jesus, in his seed. So here's this principle. Uh, The singular seed, and not plural refers to Christ. It's capitalized, and it's it's referring to Jesus, and here's what he's saying. In Abraham, uh, or, or, or God's covenant with Abraham in Jesus is then unchanging, and you can't overshadow it with another law, with another covenant. This covenant was not only made to Abraham, but also to Jesus, the Messiah, and it can't and won't change. The good news, and we won't have time to get here today, but if you go down to verse 26, he says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and and heirs according to the promise. So here's what he's saying. He, he, He Applies this principle to Jesus, but because we are of Christ and we are sons of God, then we too are Abraham's seed. So everything he's about to say about Jesus, you get because you're a son of God. Are you with me? All right. The importance of what he's saying. God's covenant covenant to Abraham and to us cannot be overruled by a covenant God later established with Israel at Sinai. So, one covenant came before the other. The one that came first is the one that matters to you and me. It's the most important for you and me. Does the second one matter? Absolutely. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But it's the most important one, the one that carries the the weight for salvation, is the covenant with Abraham. It's the covenant of faith. It's the covenant of believing. And it's the one that allows the blessing of Abraham uh, to come on us. So here's what he's saying. You go by Abraham's standard. Moses' law cannot cancel out the blessings and the promises of Abraham. So therefore, everything that Moses gave us was for a different purpose than the covenant that was with Abraham. So they're not against each other. They work in conjunction with one another to help us us get to Jesus who fulfilled all of them. So there, So what seems to be at odds? The Galatians had them at odds. Galatians had this stuff with Abraham and this stuff with Moses at odds with one another, and, and what Jesus was teaching and what Paul was teaching. They seem to have them all at odds. But Paul is saying they're not all. They're not at odds at all. They work in conjunction. Moses, the the laws that we got at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and all the other ones. They can't cancel out Abraham. Nod your head at me if you've got this. This is important. This is a big deal here because he's breaking it down and is showing us they're not at odds, they work together. He's saying, listen, you quote Moses, I quote Abraham. You quote what you think is the foundation, but I'm going back 430 years or however many years it was before that. So I'll go even further down and get to the truth. Watch what he says. In verse 18. verse Yeah, verse 18. Watch this. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. I want you to notice one word there, gave. The word gave here is translated from the Greek word uh, charizomai, Charizomai. The root word... Of charizomai is the word charis. You may have heard of this word before. Any, any Greek translators in here know what the Greek word charis means? No Bible scholars? It means grace. Okay? So grace then is uh, God giving to us what we don't deserve. Why is it important that, that, the, that all this stuff is hinged upon His promise to Abraham? It's given by grace. Grace to you and to me and to Abraham because we don't deserve it. And when he says it's a promise, he's saying it's hingent upon me being God, not us being man. A covenant, the law, if it was all based on the law, it implies that we have to do this. And if we do this, God will do this. And then it will all work out in the end. But it's not based on the law. It's based on God who gave His promise. So here's all it is. All we have to do for this thing to work is come to Jesus. That's it. The rest of it is all on God's promise. God promised that He would give this to you and I. The blessings of Abraham. He gave it freely. Just like grace. He gave it even though we don't deserve it. Didn't deserve it. Don't deserve it. We'll never deserve it. And yet... He gave it freely. Then it's the, 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 the tense. It's, it's the perfect tense. What's called perfect tense in Greek. Which means that it's permanent. You just keep coming to Jesus. Nothing can, t- nothing can steal it away from you. Nothing can steal the promise. Nothing can steal salvation from you. Nothing can... Oh, you just got to give it to Jesus. Just keep coming to Jesus. The world tries to come at you. You seem to follow it. Just just turn back to Jesus. Wherever you are, turn back to Jesus. He's right there waiting. The promise is waiting on you. It's permanent. So it was given out of the grace and the goodness of God. And nothing, including the law of Moses, as great as it was and as great as it is, can change that. So that leads us to the most important question that we're going to try to answer today. What in the world, then, is the purpose of the law? If it can't get us to God, it can't save us, why mess with it? Why mess with it? Is that a fair question? Clearly it was because Paul asks it in verse 19. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which would have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What in the world is the law for? What purpose then does the law serve? Notice he says, it was added. Go back to verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. I can assure you of one thing, he's not talking about Jesus transgressions. He's talking about our transgressions. He's talking about the transgression of the Israelites. It, it, it was the law came because we sin. The law came because we mess up. The law came because in Genesis chapter 6, God was so upset with the sin and the wickedness in the world, he, he vowed to destroy it, and then it got right back into sin again. But he had already vowed he wouldn't do it again, so he couldn't, he couldn't destroy us. So what did he do? He gave us the law. <laughs> okay. All right. God had had to give us, uh, the, part of the reason the law was given was to restrain their transgression of men through clearly revealing God's holy standard. So the law then reflects God, God's character, His nature, and, and, uh, and it's His holy standard for living. So suddenly, when you, think about this. If you don't know what, if there are no laws in America... You can do whatever you want, and you would never know if you were doing the right thing or the wrong thing, right? You could drive 120 miles an hour or 30 miles an hour down the highway. Police officer pulls you over and says, you were speeding. You say, what do you mean I was speeding? There's no speed limit, right? But as soon as they put that 65 mile an hour speed limit on there, it sets this framework, okay, that means I can go 71 without getting a ticket. (laughs) You know you think that way, (laughs) How fast can I go? How much can I push this limit without? Here's the deal. The the law of Moses put into writing, put into our life, what the holy standards of God were, so then it exposes when we're sinning. Are you with me? Now, if if you're doing something that's not in accordance with the law of Moses, now you know that you're sinning. If you are in the middle of adultery... You know you're sinning because the law says i shall you shall not covet your neighbor's wife right If you are stealing, if you are trying to rob Wells Fargo bank, you know you're sinning because the Bible says you shall not steal right so the law then uh reveals God's standards. Uh, And and he had to do this so that we wouldn't destroy ourselves before the Messiah came. Because we were headed for destruction. Second reason is, the law excites man's innate rebellion through revealing a standard. Showing us more clearly our need for salvation in Jesus. Here's the deal. You know this probably about your kids or your teenagers. The moment you give them a rule, you know that they're planning a way to break it. (laughs) What's the old saying? Rules were meant to be broken. There is innate in us, right or wrong, uh, some of it's strong, some of it's not, that we break rules. In this process, God is revealing our need for a Savior. So now when you break those rules, you know, I need a Savior. Are you with me? So the law is for a reason. It's just not to save us. The law can't save you. Let's keep moving forward. Till the seed, notice it's capitalized again. Who's it referring to? Are you guys learning anything tonight? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So as the law was meant to prepare us for the work of the Messiah, it was given till Jesus should come. The law was meant to prepare us. It was meant to get us ready. It was meant to hold us until the Messiah could come and save us. The, The law of Moses isn't revoked when Jesus came though. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus makes a statement that he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. So the law was helping us, keeping us, preparing us for the Savior to come. But once he came, he didn't come to destroy the law. We still need the law. So now, we still have the promise of Abraham. We still have the just shall live by faith. But that doesn't mean we do away with the law. We still need the law. It's just that the law of Moses is no longer the the way of approaching God. Verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given... Uh, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Is the law wrong or somehow the enemy? No, absolutely not. Is the law evil or opposing God's promise? Absolutely not. The The problem with the law is found in its inability to give strength to those who desire to keep it. What if you went to work every day and all you were ever told was how bad of a job you do? Everything that you do wrong, you're wrong on this, you're wrong on that, you're terrible. What's wrong with you? You're, have you? My, my, my grandpa says, is your mind weak? And all you're told is what you do wrong and what you do wrong and what you do wrong and you never get told what you do right. All you get told is how bad you are and how wrong you are. Would that motivate you? Would that give you strength to get up in the morning and say, hey, I'm going at this again today? <laughs> no. Think about when you're raising your kids. Maybe you're still raising them. uh, Or maybe you're planning to raise them. If all you ever do is whip them and punish them and put them in the corner and take their TV away. Lindsay, one time, she she got punished so bad her mom took all of her clothes away except for her school uniform. She wore it to school. Huh? You did? Okay. Well, then you know the story. She wore her uniform to school, to church, to the mall, everywhere because that's all the clothes she had. What if you never went to your kid and said, I know you've done a lot wrong, but I just want you to know today you're doing a good job. My son will remind you. He'll say, Dad, am I being a good boy today? You're being a good boy. Then you need to tell me you're a fine young man. His papa always tells him you're a fine young man. So The law doesn't strengthen you. And it doesn't encourage you. It it, it doesn't give you life. It's just always beating you down. Because remember, you can't keep them all, all the time. So every day, you don't wake up saying, Today I'm going to be more than a conqueror. No, you wake up saying, How many am I going to break today? It's not how good of a day is it going to be. It's how bad of a day is it going to be. How much am I going to do wrong? Not how much am I going to get right. the law could have given life, then it would have brought righteousness. But the law brings no life. It simply states the command and tells us to keep it and tells us the consequences if we break it. And that's it. But don't underestimate the law. Verse 22. uh, But the scripture has confined all under sin that the the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Notice confined. This word confined refers to a prison. So the scripture, the laws then, imprison us. They they put us in prison. Now, first of all, this this is a bad thing because the law can't get you out of the prison. The law put you in the prison and swallowed the key. It can't get you out. You can't saw your way out. You are done for. You're in a prison that you can't get out of. Remember, you're under the curse. Only faith can get you out of the prison. The law can show us clearly our problem and God's standards, but it cannot give us the freedom to get us out. Only Jesus can. So then we turn in verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. That sounds the same as confined, except it's totally different. This talks about the good part of what the law did. Yes, the law put you in a gate that you can't get out of. It put you in prison. But it also kept you under guard. This refers to what we might call protective custody. So the law is protecting us. What does he say? Kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. What is he he referring to? Protective custody. It protects us by showing us God's heart. That's what the law does. It protects you by showing you the heart of God. It protects us by showing us the best way to live. It protects us by showing uh, what what should be approved and disapproved among men. It protects us among many other ways by providing a foundation for civil law almost every single of the greatest um, constitutions that have lasted and produced uh, healthy uh, civilizations over the last several thousand years have been based in one way or another off of the Ten Commandments. Our constitution, you could say we're not a Christian nation, whatever. It's based off of, in great degree, the Ten Commandments and the other laws of God. How to treat people? So this, so it's good for us. It protects us in that way. It keeps us, but it also does other things. It prepares us uh, to come to Jesus. By the way, it reveals God's character and the way it exposes our sin. It positions us to recognize that we need a Savior. You're in a prison. All you have to do to get out of the prison is this: you say to Jesus, "I recognize that I'm a sinner." And I can't get out of this prison on my own. Please save me. That's all it takes to get out. The law can't get you out. He swallowed the key. The only way to get out is to recognize that you're a sinner. What does the law do? The law helps us recognize that we're sinners. When we break the laws, it's not that Jesus is walking around with a notepad saying, oh, you did that, and oh, you did that. No, no. We know, if you know anything in the Bible, you know when you sin, for the most part. How many of you can nod your head at me and say, you know when you sin? Why? In great degree because of the law. So the law helps expose our need for a Savior, preparing us to receive Jesus. If you didn't know you needed a Savior, if you didn't know you were in a prison, you would never have any desire to get out. If you didn't know you were sinning, why would you come to Jesus who could wash away your sins? So Again, Paul's showing us the law is not at odds with the promise of Abraham. It's not at odds with with living by faith. They go hand in hand. Coming to a close. <clears throat> the whole purpose of the law is to bring us to Jesus. It functions in verse 24 and 25 as our tutor. Now, we know a tutor to be someone who helps us and teaches us and uh, gives us extra studies in school. To I mean, Maybe we're struggling in our science or our math, and so we go to a tutor to help us learn those things. The word tutor here is the best translation they could come up with, but it's really a very poor translation of what he's referring to. The Greek word there is a long word, uh, paedagogos, I think. I I can't remember how to say it. Something like that, long word, but it's not just referring to teaching a child, but this person, what, what he's referring to as a tutor now, was a person who was a child's guardian, who would watch over his learning, who would teach them, who would learn, teach them their studies and their, their writing and all those things, but he would also uh, work with his behavior, his, his discipline. He did all those things. I mean, it was basically uh, a, a parent and a teacher all combined into one. It was more than just someone who helps you study. It was a person who helped you with discipline, who punished you and you were out of line. They watched over everything. They made sure you were fed. They made sure you were taken care of. They made sure you had all the things that you needed and preparing you for life in adulthood. They would stay with you. Oftentimes this person might be a slave themselves that was assigned to a wealthy child. Raised them from a baby, from an infant, all the way all the way through childhood, through their teenage years, until they grew to be a man or a woman. Their job was to work with the child in protective custody, per se, to teach them and discipline until they were grown. At that point, it should be in them. When they were a child, their tutor would walk around with them, telling them everything, this is right, that is wrong. There was a list of rules. When you went to your kindergarten classroom, if you may remember that far back... Maybe you don't remember that far back. Go in our kindergarten classroom over here. You'll see a list of rules on the wall. No talking in class. Raise your hand if you have a question. Can't leave the classroom to go to the restroom without asking the teacher first. Whatever the rules were. How many remember having a list of rules? You were a kid. You probably don't have, when you get in your, wake up in the morning, a list of rules in, in your house hanging on your wall for you. Now, you might have them for your kids, but you don't probably have a list of rules that says, you know, make sure you get up on time. Don't forget to brush your teeth. You know, go to work on time. Go to bed on time. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. uh, You know, make sure and observe the Sabbath. You probably don't. How many of you have a list of rules like that? Probably not many of them. Maybe, maybe we should. Here's the point. When it and when a child grew into, let's take a boy, when a boy grew into a man under his tutor, at that point they were supposed to, they were they were it was supposed to be written on his heart, so that now he knows them and he lives them, even though someone's not standing over him with a a, a book checking off what he did right or wrong. So here's what here's what Paul is saying. Uh The grown child doesn't do away with the discipline and the lessons that he learned. But he also doesn't live under the tutor anymore. The tutor goes away. Here's what he's saying. We don't do away with the law, but once you receive faith, God writes it on our heart. The laws. We live them. We know not to steal. Not because we wake up and read it on the wall every day, but because it's in our heart. And it reflects the character of God. So the law is so very important. We don't do away with it. It teaches us. It guides us. It helps prepare us to to recognize that we need a Savior. How to do things. How to live. How to function. How to survive. How how, how to thrive. When you go back to the, the, the doctrine of two ways. You want to be blessed? Do it this way. But they're written on our heart now. So that we can go and live them. So the question of the night is this, is the law written on your heart, or have you thrown it out? God isn't coming around with a list of rules. They're in the Bible, they reflect His heart, they reflect His character, but He is trusting you to follow them. I'm going to read this statement by Charles Spurgeon, and then we're going to close. He said, the law ceases its office as schoolmaster when it comes to be written on our hearts. Boys have their lessons on slates, but men have their laws in their mind. We trust a man where we should carefully watch a boy. When the child becomes a man, his father and mother do not write down little rules for them as they did when he was a child in petticoats. Neither do they set servants over him to keep him in order. He is trusted. His manliness is trusted. His honor is trusted. His best feelings are trusted. So now, brethren, we who have believed in Jesus have the law written here on our hearts and it corresponds with what is written there In the scriptures. Can God trust you? Can he trust you? Can he trust you? His character, his heart is revealed in his laws. Are they written on your heart? And can he trust you to live them? He saved you by faith. That's not even the issue. Can he trust you then to go out and live them? Like a boy that grew up. Parents not walking around with the laws and the list and the thing. No, no. We trust your manliness. Can your manliness, your maturity as a Christian be trusted by God? That's the question of the night. Would you stand with me?